Let's turn for our first reading then to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness." Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we, uh, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children. That ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always. For the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. So, in this second chapter, the Apostle Paul begins by speaking 
of the ministry of the gospel that went forth in 1 Thessalonians and the character of it. Um, when he first came to Thessalonians, to the Thessalonian uh, church or to Thessalonica, remember, they started in the synagogue. They preached in the synagogue. You'll find that record in Acts chapter 17, having recently left Philippi. Philippi and, Thessal- and Thessalonica are near cities one to another in the Greek province of Macedonia in the northern part, right there at the northern tip of the uh, Aegean Sea. So here you have then this this, uh, fresh off of persecution uh, ministry. Did that slow Paul down? That's the question that we ask here, and obviously it did not. Still putting one foot in front of the other for the sake of the gospel, Paul leaves Philippi, remember, after having been jailed, after having been uh, beaten, having been locked up in the stocks, and so on. After all of that, Paul leaves and goes to Thessalonica and begins preaching there. And notice, immediately again, there is persecution stirred up by the synagogue that is in Thessalonica. And so what happens? Does Paul say, ooh, I've seen this before. I'm leaving. No, he doesn't. He stays, continues to preach, establishes the church to which he writes here, and then the brethren escort him out under threat of death. And that's when he travels down to Berea. So the first thing we see here is that that the persecution that Paul speaks of here was no little thing. Uh, They persecuted Paul vehemently in Thessalonica, and when they heard he had stopped in Berea, they of Thessalonica traveled there and persecuted him also in that city. So these were vehement men. Paul speaks much about that. He said, we came off of Philippi with much contention, but our, our exhortation was not of deceit nor uncleanness or guile. And then verse 4, very interestingly worded in your authorized version, as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. Perhaps that's a little bit weak, the word allowed there. It's not, it's not a bare permission. It speaks of an appointment, an authoritative appointment. Okay, And so what Paul says here is God appointed us to this ministry so we don't stop. We must give answer to him, is what he says a little bit later in the verse where he says, not pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. So it was God who sent Paul on on his missionary endeavor. And so it is God who will judge that missionary endeavor. This is uh, true for the ministers of the gospel today. It's true for the elders, other elders that serve alongside them. It is true for the diaconate as well. That they are sent by God to those offices and they will give account to God for how they have worked particularly in his church. This is a little bit different with regard to an earthly calling that is not ecclesiastical because you have a different client there, don't you? Right? If you're working for, say, let's say you own your own business. I don't work for anybody, the, the business owner says. Oh, you know better than that if you own a business, don't you? That's right. You have a client, don't you? Yes, you do. You have clients that you do business for, your customer base, and then also you will give account to the Lord. But there's immediate client there. But with regard to the gospel ministry, and beloved, with regard to our worship, when we come to serve God, there is no immediate client there. These services are done directly to God, and God will try our hearts based on His commands alone. No immediate authority intervening. 
Wow, that's different, isn't it? There are times, beloved, when we serve the Lord only, explicitly. If all of life is worship, then none of life is explicitly worship, right? So, we remember that God tries the hearts of those who serve Him in their various callings without an intermediate client, without another customer, if you will. All right, so then... Paul will say that we did not seek glory of men. And what he means by that is he didn't advertise the due that was given to him. He didn't insist upon his right to be paid for his ministry. And he'll go on to explain that. Paul labored as a, quote, tent maker. He's lent a word, hasn't he, to the English language. We know what that means when a pastor will shake someone's hand and say, they'll ask him, well, what do you do, pastor? And he'll say, I'm a tent maker. That means he has a calling, a job that is outside of his pastoral ministry, right? And that's not an unlawful thing. It's not the most desirable thing. But it is not unlawful. Sometimes that's the only situation that can be had. And so the Apostle Paul will say that uh, he did not uh, take money from his charges. Uh, He was there in Thessalonica. He preached the gospel. He says the same thing to the Corinthians. He preached free of charge. Why? Because he's endeavoring to advance the estate of the gospel and make it as free, as uh, widespread as possible. And so he said, we did not insist upon anything. We did not seek the glory of men. We did not seek to have our worth extolled to the extent that we would be paid for our ministry. That's what he means there. But rather, we were, we were humble, we were gentle, like a, like a nurse is with her children. And notice the success that God gave to the ministry there. Uh, very, very interestingly, he, uh, Paul will say this, um, that we exhorted you that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Interesting that the that the message here doesn't sound much like gospel per se. He says, we called upon you to walk worthy of God. Notice that Paul is a whole Bible preacher, as he told the Ephesian elders. It's all the counsel of God that we preach. It's not just a, quote, gospel message. Um, You know, uh, in modern day redemptive historical preaching, you'll have everything tied back to the gospel Somehow, I even heard a minister preach once when Uzzah reached out and touched the ark and was killed for it. He somehow devolved that into a gospel message. Well, it's a worship message for sure. There's a lot to be said there. But, but this, you know, um, uh, we hear uh, there's, you know, Jesus is on every page of the Bible. Well, in a sense, that's true. That's right. But there are moral teachings of Scripture as well. And these are... To be pressed to the people of God. And as we'll hear, Lord willing, in the sermon this morning, uh, you know, when Paul will talk about obeying the truth, beloved, it is as much a sin to believe the wrong thing as it is to do the wrong thing. We want to obey the truth. How do we obey the truth? By receiving it, by saying, This is true. False doctrine is a sin, beloved. And when we begin to understand that, we begin, again, don't we, to see how great sinners we are. Because we all have holes and difficulties in our theology. 
We are called upon to obey the truth. And then the other thing about obeying the truth that is helpful to remember is that it's always bad practice that rises up out of bad doctrine. Right? Believing the wrong things leads to doing the wrong things. Okay. So now, verse 13 is one of those things that we want to burn into our memories. Paul will say to the Thessalonians, now we came and we preached the word of God to you. And you know what you did? You received it as it is in truth, the very word of God. Beloved, I'm, I, I hope I have an opportunity to say this a million more times before the Lord takes me home. This book is unique. This book is different from every other piece of information that you will ever hear, look at, um, uh, reason to. This is true. This is unassailable. This will never change. What it said when it was first penned is as fresh and as true as it will be into eternity. Forever, O Lord, is thy word settled in heaven. Everything you see with your eyes, everything the scientists tell you, and if they were true scientists, they would stop using the phrase, the science is settled. Because once science is settled, it's dogma. It's not science anymore. If it's science, it can't be settled. Right? That's true. Now, we may have moral practices that we draw out of our investigations. God has designed us like that. That's true. And he's told us to do that in his word. That's how we know it's true. And we're not making stuff up. So this word is unique. And that's how the Thessalonians received it. We don't get to argue with God and his word. Paul will say that this is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now wait a minute pastor you've told us that the Bible doesn't work by itself it's always the word and spirit and it is. It's always the word and spirit. However the necessity of the word is such that very often in scripture you'll only hear one half of that equation. You'll only hear it's the word which works. Right? James will say, by his own word he begat us. Yet Jesus will say, you must be born of God, born of the Spirit. Both are true. All over the scriptures we will see it's the Spirit that works in you. Then we'll see it's the word that works in you. The Spirit works by means of the word. And he does not work apart from the word. At least not ordinarily. There may be some extraordinary works of the Spirit apart from the Word. But His ordinary means of progression is that we hear the Word, He illumines our minds to understand it, and makes it effectual to our understanding. So that's what Paul is teaching us here. And what did the Thessalonians do? They became followers of the apostles and the best churches. That's what they did. Right? Not that... Christ is somehow shuttled off to the side. No. Those churches, those best practices of the churches and of Paul himself, they were after Christ. And so they used those good examples. And so Paul was a good example. We've already heard one of those examples in that he labored free of charge. Another example is what? Well, this was an example that that they specifically needed, which was what? That... Uh, Paul continued preaching in the face of persecution as they continued to believe in the face of persecution in Thessalonica. 
It turns out that that other example is, is an example that Paul will mention to them all the way down in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. When some are busybodies, not working at all, Paul will say, don't you remember when we were with you? We worked laboring with our own hands and we told you that if a man doesn't work, neither shall he eat. What a good example then the apostle was to them in that labor. All right, so now we hear about the Jews. I used to listen to a radio program uh, back when I drove a lot in Southern California. It was one of those uh, programs that was uh, sponsored and taught by some Messianic Jews. That's what they called themselves, Messianic Jews. I think there's much too little emphasis on the Messianic part and much too great an emphasis on the Jewish part of that system. That's my own take on it. Um, However, they would uh, frequently talk about how that the Jews didn't kill Jesus, the Romans did. And you'll hear that from folks like that all the time. Well, you don't need to argue with them because their argument is with the Apostle Paul. Paul says right here that it was the Jews that killed Jesus. When Nathan came to David and he speaks to him about the death of Uriah, what does he say? You have killed Uriah with the sword of the Hittites. Right? Did David wield the sword that killed Uriah? No. Did Joab kill Uriah? Well, he had a hand in it. That wicked general should have told David, No, you can't command me to sin. I'm not going to take one of my guys into the hottest battle and then retreat from him. No, we don't do that. Not in God's army, we don't. But we also remember how worldly wise Joab was and so when he sent the messenger back to David he said and if David objects remind him that Uriah is dead that'll shut him up right somebody knows here I've got one over on the king yeah that's all wickedness surrounded by wickedness but it was David that killed Uriah according to the prophet Nathan and it was the Jews that killed Jesus according to the apostle Paul Right? So don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Notice that they have filled up their iniquity to the uttermost. Right, Wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. What are some of the marks that wrath had come upon the Jews in the first century? This is before the temple fell. What are some of the marks? Well, Paul has just been run out of town by Jews that refused to hear the gospel. You want to know a sign of wrath, beloved? When the gospel is preached in its purity and someone stops their ears and shoots the messenger, that's a sign that they're under the wrath of God. When, when God would judge a people, what does he do? He turns his face away from them. He gives them up to their vile passions, doesn't he? So that's what we see sadly and grievously. For our part, that's not a rah, rah, sis, boom, ba for us. That's a, that's, that's a humbling of us instead. We look at that and we say, there but for the grace of God go I. We don't rejoice in human suffering. We rejoice in the glory of God, but not in human suffering. All right, so then finally Paul finishes out this chapter with his great affection for the, for the 
Thessalonian church. He's already mentioned it. I've saved it for the last here uh, for the sake of time. But 17, 18, 19, and 20, the apostle speaks of the Thessalonians in great and glowing terms. Now, let's remember something here, okay? This is probably one of the first letters that Paul wrote. This is on his second missionary journey. And so with this, he is fresh off of leaving the Thessalonian church. And he has this this wonderful affection for them. Why? Because he recognizes, contrary to the Jews, that they are his true kinsmen. They believe in the same Lord Jesus Christ. They follow that godly, apostolic, and ecclesiastical practice. They have a profession of faith that has gone throughout the whole world that stands in the face of persecution. And Paul says, you know what? God put us under his authority in preaching to you the gospel, and then he used that office and preaching to advance his own kingdom. What could be more encouraging than that? Now you know why I am, Paul says, so very closely tied to you in affection. Because God sent us to you to preach a word that you heard and embraced. You embraced it so fully that you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You are our glory. If I would look, Paul would say, And remember that Paul as a Pharisee may have memorized most of the book of Isaiah. If I would look at my own ministry and I would compare it to the ministry of Isaiah, the Lord could have given me that kind of ministry. Preach until towns are laid waste. But he didn't. Instead, you are our glory. You are the advertisement of God's putting his stamp of approval upon our ministry. Praise the Lord, Paul will say. And I praise the Lord for you. So, that's how ministers ought to feel toward their flocks. And thus we bring an end to 1 Thessalonians 2. Let's stand.